From MIT, this is the Energy Initiative. I'm Francesca McCaffrey. On today's show, we look at a new MIT study on nuclear energy called The Future of Nuclear Energy in a Carbon-Constrained World. Here today with us are three of the study authors from MIT, Jacopo Buongiorno and John Parsons, study co-chairs, and Karen Dawson, PhD candidate. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is John Parsons. I'm a faculty member in the finance group at MIT Sloan School of Management. I'm Jacopo Buongiorno. I'm a professor of nuclear science and engineering at MIT. I'm Karen Dawson. I'm a PhD candidate at the Department of Nuclear Science and Engineering at MIT. Before we get into the report, let's talk about nuclear generally. Why nuclear and why now? We think the world has a big problem to solve, which is climate change. And really the study is about assessing if nuclear can play a role in the solution of that big problem. So nuclear is a primary energy source, which is used for generation of electricity. And it has three attractive features. The first is that it does not emit carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas or other air pollutants. The second is that it's reliable and dispatchable. So it generates electricity when it's needed with high capacity factors 24-7. And the third is that it does not use a lot of natural resources, both in terms of the fuel that is required to generate electricity as well as the land that is required to build the mine. What inspired all of you to write this report? So the impetus for the report was provided by the realization that a lot has changed in the energy landscape over the past 15 years, in particular for nuclear. Some things have changed for good, some things have changed for worse for nuclear and other energy sources, and so we thought that it was a good time to take a fresh look at the prospects for nuclear in the next few decades. With all of these different individuals coming together to do the study, how long did the process of writing the study take, and what did the research involve? Well, the study basically took two years. We had to scope out the study at the beginning, figure out what were the main lines of work to be done. It's a rather large team of people who made the study happen. So you have to pull those people together and identify what everybody's contributions are going to be. We also have to hash out different thoughts about the role of nuclear and what were the major opportunities going forward for new innovations and things of that sort. And then there are major pieces of research that came out of the two years of work. Students had their PhD dissertation work coming out of it or master's thesis work. um, And those major pieces of research are important sort of key elements of the report. I had one aspect I particularly enjoyed of the project was the diversity of backgrounds that everybody brought to the table. This was not just a technology assessment study, it was really a techno-economic plus policy. And so I not only hope to have contributed to the study, but also learned a lot from the colleagues who worked with me on the study. And there was a trajectory for figuring out the final points of view in the study. I mean, I think when we all started the study, there have been a lot of news articles about new reactors, research going on, some of it here at MIT, at various other places, on new reactor designs. And so there was a certain buzz in the air about what the future of nuclear was about and what you might need to solve going forward. But I think one of the points that we came to realize in the course of doing the study was that while those are important advances which may bring new opportunities in the future, some of the real critical problems to solve, uh, Jacopo mentioned cost earlier, are really with other parts of the reactor than those ones that everybody has been, as I say, buzzing about. So the construction cost is enormous, but that's all this civil work that goes around the reactor, building the containment structures and various other parts. There are lots of innovations in that area, but they weren't the ones 
Some of us knew about some of these innovations, but I think others of us really came to see how central those were. Can you give some examples of what those innovations are? And are they all construction related or are there different areas where you can make these improvements? They're mostly focused on reducing cost and time in the construction of the plant, but not exclusively. A couple of examples, modular construction that has become a little bit of a buzzword. We uh, deeper than the buzz and found that indeed shifting work from construction sites, which tend to be uh, fairly cumbersome, labor intensive and so on, to uh, factories, which tend to be a little bit more streamlined and efficient, could indeed reduce the overall cost of, of delivering the plant. We also looked into innovations related to concrete. A nuclear power plant of any design has a lot of reinforced concrete and anything you can do to reduce labor and material cost and the costs associated with the installation of those reinforced concrete structures can reduce the overall cost of the plant as well. Another example that was less obvious and was sort of an interesting surprise to me was the adoption of seismic isolation technologies, which uh, could help simplify the design of the structure seating on the seismic isolators, so the reactor itself and all its internal parts, as well as helping the standardization of the design. Because a lot of what we do in uh, current plants uh, that is related to or it's customized for the specific site is related to earthquakes. And so if you eliminate that sort of constraint or, or, or that concern with the use of a seismic isolation that you can standardize, you can standardize further. But as I said, not everything was related to um, construction, so we looked also at innovations that might help reduce the operating cost. Of course, in absolute terms, smaller than the capital cost and the cost of the plant, but still important. And so through automation, robotics, artificial intelligence, and technologies of that type, you may be able to also reduce the cost of producing electricity uh, once the plant is built. So why is it so important to make sure that nuclear is a part of the energy mix? What kind of role does it need to play in our current energy field? Right now, if we look at what technologies we have available to us that can produce real grid-level carbon-free energy, nuclear is the only option we have. We have solar and wind, but when we look at what happens when we increase the amount of installed capacity of solar and wind, it drives the cost of generating electricity up. And this is in the report. We can see that you know, as we eliminate nuclear as an option on the grid, it can make the cost of generating electricity three or four or even more than that times greater than what it would be if nuclear was an option. You mentioned in the study the importance of possibly shifting towards some newer and different reactor designs and different generations of nuclear reactors. Can you talk about what those new designs entail? So the new designs, also called Generation 4 systems or small modular reactors, do bring to the table certain potential attractive features. It ranges from some advances in the safety profile of nuclear power plants. They use radically different materials and safety systems that maybe do not require external energy sources, so they're more tolerant to abnormal events or external events, as we call them, and uh, they require a little bit less operator intervention. So we think as a nuclear is considered for growth, especially in countries that do not have experience with nuclear, these designs might help because might simplify operation and, and 
different response to, to you know accidents and abnormal events. So that's one feature that these new designs clearly bring to the table. A, a second opportunity for some of these designs is to expand the mission of nuclear. So the traditional reactors operate at relatively low temperature, around 300 degrees C, and they're very well designed for generating electricity. But if one needs, for example, heat at high, pro at high temperature for certain industrial processes, it could be the production of chemicals, it could be the generation of, of hydrogen for power and fuel cells and so on, then you need a different design. Some of these designs do operate at the temperatures that are, that are suitable for this. And then lastly, to the extent that they can simplify the construction process and the delivery of the plant, that they also potentially offer the opportunity to reduce cost. But the jury is very much still out on that on the opportunity to reduce costs just through changes in design in the generation four systems. And the report and, the, and in the study, we went through the analysis of where these opportunities are and found that the maturity of some of these technologies such that you cannot definitively say now that the cost will be reduced unless those designs adopt the innovations in construction that we discussed a few minutes ago. Yeah, I'd say one of the biggest contributions we make is, in a sense, giving some direction to the industry, as well as perhaps to government funders of research and such, on where to focus future advances. So the point we made earlier about construction costs, that's the big problem that the industry faces. So you, if you don't tackle that problem, you're really not going to get very far. And that problem is really about other elements than the nuclear reactor vessels and the exact way in which the nuclear fission happens and the heat is transported and things of that sort. Really directing people to focus on the construction process is a big deal. It's also true that a lot of people who feel in nuclear innovation are focused on the fuel cycle. The fuel cycle being both what fuel do you put into the plant and what happens to the spent fuel when it's done and trying to make new fuel cycles, in particular recycling the waste. And while there are attractive benefits out of recycling the waste, it's not at the current technology that we have, it's not going to reduce the cost. So if the first problem is cost, then talking about recycling the fuel is not addressing the first problem. Like I said, there can be other benefits from handling the fuel differently and so on that may be worth it the while, but it's not addressing that problem. Another concern that people certainly have about nuclear energy is uh, so-called waste management, which really is the management of the spent fuel once it comes out of the reactor. What we say in the report is that the political dimension always outweighs the technical dimension for this particular problem. Uh, in other words, there are robust technical solutions, whether they are interim uh, storage in dry casks, for example, or uh, geological disposal in excavated repositories or even deep boreholes. But traditionally, the challenge has been associated with siting the repositories, not really with, uh, you know, with, uh, with the engineering and the technology itself. The main problem that we've had in the United States is that the process of finding a site, and this unfortunately has been repeated in other countries, has been politically mismanaged and without the necessary consensus and engagement with local communities. But there are some examples that are a reason for hope internationally, for example, Finland and Sweden, where that process has taken place in a more 
consensus-based and, and better managed approach, and they have been able to find sites for their waste management repositories. While we haven't worked on specifically on the waste management issue in the study, we do recognize it's an important problem that has to be addressed if nuclear is to grow both domestically as well as internationally. But we don't offer new solutions. We just say, look, there are robust technical solutions. The government has to act and make sure that the sites are selected with due process. On the topic of government involvement, what would you say are some of the most important ways in which the government can help the nuclear sector to grow and diversify the energy mix? Well, one of the important things that the government does is structure the market in which nuclear power is sold. That market structure needs to be managed so that people who invest in nuclear power can earn a return on the products that they're selling. That can be a problem right at the moment because when I say you earn a return on the products that they're selling, nuclear is offering a very valuable product because the electricity is produced without carbon. So it's low carbon electricity. But in the United States, for example, a few of the states are beginning to put a price on carbon so that power plants that emit carbon pay a penalty, whereas the power plants that don't emit the carbon don't pay a penalty. But right now, that's very weak. So we don't give enough benefit to the plants that don't emit carbon. We need to pay more for that. We support a few technologies like wind and solar with tax credits or production credits of a sort, but we're not giving that same credit to nuclear. So basically, if we rationalized how we're dealing with this climate problem and said everything that contributes to producing low carbon electricity should be paid the same and we should pay the price that we need to pay to get low carbon electricity, uh, that would be the first step that would benefit nuclear power plants. We have some existing nuclear power plants in the United States that are finding it difficult to make a profit, they're competing against low-priced natural gas where the natural gas plants pay no penalty for the carbon. If I may add to that, I would say a powerful message that the study delivers is that, yes, industry has to pull its act together and start to deliver new nuclear power plants at a lower cost and on time. But there is also a very important role that the government has to play. In particular, I would emphasize out of John, out of what John said, the balanced policy that put all low-carbon energy technologies on the same, on the same plane. Was there anything that came up during the research that surprised you? Well, if I speak about the surprises, I'm going to betray the fact that I don't really know much about nuclear. Um, it's a fun thing to participate in a research study with other people who know a field you don't know. We talk about these advanced nuclear technologies, and I imagined that they were, so to speak, invented yesterday and tomorrow. So it's been really interesting to discover how many of these so-called Generation 4 technologies were dreamt of right at the beginning of the nuclear age. The scientists who eventually developed the one that we're using predominantly to do electricity generation now also thought of many of these others uh, a long time ago, and to see the experiments that were done decades past. And it also helps me see how research and new scientific discoveries enable you to do something. Some of these designs, which were tried in the past, are nevertheless more ripe now because we've developed new materials that can be used with these now new designs, but once upon a time old ideas. An old idea might not have been viable back five decades ago, but uh, much more viable now. So I just found it very interesting to learn a little bit about that sort of thing. 
I guess on the flip side of looking at construction costs, what really surprised me was things that weren't really big drivers. When we ran a sensitivity study on our results, we found that things such as severe weather or efficiency of power plants didn't change the overall generation mix. And the only thing that did change the generation mix were construction costs of nuclear and construction costs of renewables. And when you say generation mix, do you mean how much power output the nuclear plant is putting out? Both that and also how much installed capacity of each generation type is on the grid. To look at the future generation mix that would adequately meet certain carbon targets, we used a model called GenX, which optimized how much installed capacity of different generation types, such as solar, wind, nuclear, natural gas, carbon capture, etc., were installed on the grid. And not only did it look at how much were installed on the grid, but how much each type was going to be generating. I have a question for you about being a student involved in the study. How does this work relate to your studies at school, but also what do you think being involved in studies like this can do to benefit students in general? I'll answer the second part of that question first. The biggest gain that I got from the study was being exposed to all of the stakeholders in nuclear, not only the members of the study, but the people we went out and interviewed, going from the theory of a classroom to how everything I've learned so far can have real-world implications. And then to answer the question of how this work relates to my studies, so my dissertation is looking at similar topics of how we can decarbonize. I'm looking at not only electricity markets, but also decarbonization and heat and transportation markets. And I'm looking at the work that I've done for this study and all of the uncertainties in it, and not only looking at what's going to be the cheapest option, but what's going to have the highest likelihood of success. What do you want members of the general public who might not have a background in nuclear but who read your study to take away from it? Well, one big takeaway is that nuclear really can contribute to the solution of this big problem, global warming. And so when we say a policy that is inclusive, all of the above and so on, the analogy that I like to make is with like a soccer or someone may use uh, ice hockey. But the idea is if you really, really want to score a goal, you need to have as many shots on goal as possible. And so excluding one technology or the other technology or any technology that has potential to score a goal is obviously a mistake. Keeping nuclear in the mix along with renewable and, and even fossil fuels with carbon capture and sequestration is the common sense and right thing to do. Yeah, I would hope people who looked at it would see all the dynamism in the research going on in a whole variety of areas in technological development. And so if you had a vague notion of nuclear from the past, or you thought that the trends that you had seen in the last 15 years or something must be the trends going forward, I'd hope you'd see that there's a lot of opportunity to make things done differently, both technologically and also at an industrial and policy level. What's next for all of the authors of the study? So since the report has gone public, it's been released at the beginning of September, we've been on a, um, essentially on a world tour, if you wish, in different capitals in Europe, in, in the U.S., and then in Asia to have a, an open discussion about the findings of the study and what the implications are, including implications that might be specific to the countries that we visit from time to time. Uh, it's no mystery that nuclear and the problem nuclear can solve, which is global warming, is by definition a global problem and therefore it's important not to focus exclusively in the U.S., but to really have a global dialogue about uh, nuclear and, and solutions to climate change. 
So what's next for me is I'm looking at adding an extra layer of dimensionality to the results that we have from looking at the future decarbonization scenarios and looking at more than just costs, but also what's the chance of succeeding at meeting certain carbon targets. Thank you all for being here today. Thank you for having us. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Show notes and links for this episode are at energy.mit.edu slash podcast. Tweet us at MIT Energy with your questions, comments, and show ideas. And subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. From the MIT Energy Initiative, I'm Francesca McCaffrey. Thanks for listening.